To you and me, Christianity sounds rational, reasonable. So what is it about our faith that Jewish rabbis struggle with the most, and why? How do we answer those objections, or can we even? Well, coming up, a very bold conversation that we've titled, Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity. Plus, the latest headlines from the Middle East, answers to some rather puzzling Bible questions, and more. A welcome to The Land and the Book, a one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Our pilot is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Old Testament scholar and frequent flyer to the Middle East. Charlie, no uh, turbulence projected for the next hour, but there'll be plenty of uh, scenery, I suspect. Uh, That's right. It's a fast flyover, but the scenery is terrific. All right, let's get started with a look at current events in this first of four segments on the land and the book. Tensions over the pandemic are running high in the ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel. Help us understand what's behind the conflict between the ultra-Orthodox and the rest of Israel. You know, right now, the main conflict centers on Israel's COVID-19 restrictions. Israel's doing a good job of vaccinating its citizens, but they're also dealing with the British variant of COVID-19, which has caused a spike in the infection rate. They're now a month into their third lockdown, and that's the heart of the problem. The country as a whole is getting weary of the restrictions. The ultra-Orthodox community feel the restrictions are especially hard on them. They tend to live in small, crowded apartments, and they have large families. Forcing everyone to stay inside is like a pressure cooker in terms of family dynamics. In addition, their lives revolve around the synagogue, the yeshiva, which is the religious school, and the study of the Torah. And those aspects of community life are what the government has ordered closed. So from the ultra-Orthodox perspective, their very way of life is being repressed by the state. Now this past Sunday, two prominent ultra-Orthodox rabbis died on the same day. Over 10,000 showed up for the first funeral and about 8,000 for the second, totally violating the prohibition on public gatherings. Secular Israelis, who are the majority, see this and they're incensed by such large illegal gatherings. They know that in a week or two, there'll be another surge in the COVID cases in those communities. And they resent the fact that they get punished for violating the lockdown while the ultra-Orthodox appear to get a free pass. Attempts to enforce the lockdown in the ultra-Orthodox community have led to riots, with buses being set on fire and rocks being thrown at the police. Now, to put this in terms we can understand, it's a clash of values, pitting the sincere religious beliefs of a minority against the needs and concerns of a secular majority. And the problem is that each side is so intent on demanding its own way that the entire situation has become completely polarized. Hmm. I see a good lesson in this, John, for our own country. We need to learn how to disagree without becoming disagreeable. I like the lesson found in Daniel chapter 1. Rather than demanding his rights as a follower of the God of Israel, Daniel looked for a creative compromise, a way to follow his beliefs while also accomplishing what the king wanted. Uh, Many times there are ways to make a positive impact on society while still being a good testimony for God. But Daniel also reminds us there are times when that isn't an option. And yet, even when facing a den of lions or a fiery furnace, Daniel and his three friends were able to stand for God without becoming violent or mean-spirited. And that's what seems to be lost in the ultra-Orthodox community right now. Hmm. And that's a story we're just not seeing on our mainstream media, of course, here. So thanks for underscoring that, Charlie. Multiple stories this past week focused on Iran, Turkey, and Russia. What are the common threads linking these three seemingly very different countries? 
Well, I see three threads linking them all together. The, the first is a common desire to replace the U.S. and our influence in the region. You know, we've dominated the Middle East for decades, but by working together, they hope to force America to back away from that place of prominence. The second thread uh, that's linking them together, well, it's a common desire to carve out their own positions of influence in the region. In that sense, there's a fine line between being allies and being adversaries. Turkey and Russia have been rivals in Syria in the very recent past, and Turkey and Iran could soon be potential rivals in Azerbaijan. Russia's alignment with Orthodox Christianity sets up a conflict with both the Sunnis and the Shiites, uh, who align religiously with Turkey or Iran. Uh, The third common link that pulls them together is a desire to blunt, or in some cases remove, Israel's impact from the region. Iran and Israel are in the middle of an undeclared war being waged in Syria. Turkey's been supporting Hamas in its fight against Israel. Russia supports Syria and supplies them with weapons that threaten Israel. Russia is also trying to influence some of the Palestinian factions in the coming elections. They see an opportunity to gain influence with the Palestinian Authority. Well, long term, the three countries are rivals. They want to dominate the same region, and each has its own political and religious agenda that doesn't mesh with the other two but at least temporarily, their common interests overrule those differences. They're looking for ways to set up and share individual spheres of influence so they can concentrate on their more immediate objectives. We know, John, from Ezekiel 38 and 39, that these very unnatural allies will unite at some point in an ill-fated plot to attack Israel. Uh, What that tells me is we need to just keep an eye on their interactions. We're looking at current events here on the Middle East, stories that are based from a Middle East perspective that uh, are helpful for us to know about on this opening segment of today's edition of The Land and the Book. Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. Interesting story here, Charlie. Archaeologists announced the discovery of ancient purple cloth from the time of King David. What do we know about this find, and what can it tell us about that particular time in history? Yeah, some of the headlines that were out were a bit misleading, but the discovery really is fascinating. Archaeologists uncovered bits of fabric that date to about 1000 BC. Now that alone is terrific because 3000 year old fabric, that's extremely rare. Uh, But the fabric was dyed a royal purple and the color was still quite dazzling. Uh, The discovery is at least a thousand years older than any previous fabric found dyed with this color. Now, the reason it was found was because of its location. It was discovered at a site called Timna, south of the Dead Sea, almost to a lot. Uh, That region is extremely dry, and that's what allowed the fabric to survive. The color comes from sea snails found in the Mediterranean. Uh, It's a very complex dyeing process, but those snails were then used to produce either this royal purple color or an azure blue color. The copper mines at Timna were originally controlled by the Edomites until David brought Edom under Israel's control. Now, finding such expensive fabrics at such a remote site suggests either the fabric belonged to royal representatives who were there controlling the region, or that those who were overseeing the smelting process itself made a very good living from the craft. You know, they would have been the high-tech elite of that day. But indirectly, it's also a reminder that the era of David and Solomon, as described in the Bible, matches historical reality. Goods from the Mediterranean were being imported down to Timna, while the copper from those mines was being used to supply and enrich the government in Jerusalem. Blue and purple are mentioned together in the Bible 28 times. Mm. This discovery helps us realize why these colors were associated with the worship of God and with royalty. They were dazzling, rare, 
and expensive, and the colors didn't fade. Hmm. Charlie, what further details do we know, if any? I mean, how big a piece of fabric was this, or was it several pieces? And, you know, was it just like, you know, in the dirt, lying there? Was it in a container? Do we know anything else? Uh, it was it was found in sight, which means it was probably found in the dirt. Uh, there were several pieces, and they were relatively small. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, a, a bolt of cloth. Uh, but truly amazing find. And, and if you see a picture of the pieces that were found, the color is spectacular. All right, I'll look forward to seeing those images. A multinational team of scientists led by an Israeli have created what they describe as a Google map of the brain's RNA. What's the significance of this latest project coming out of Amazing Israel, Charlie? Well, this remarkable group has developed a technique for sequencing the RNA inside brain tissue in mice down to the nano resolution. Uh, their goal was to produce a molecular Google map of sorts of a brain's memory center, the hippocampus, by zooming in on a tissue's RNA without destroying it. The new technique provides a detailed map of the location of genes inside the brain. When applied to the human brain, this means doctors will no longer only have information on the identity of different molecules within the brain. They'll know exactly where those molecules are located inside the tissue. They believe this new information will enable doctors to analyze cancerous cells, for example, to determine why immunotherapies work well in some patients but not in others. They also think it'll provide a new glimpse into how Alzheimer's affects the location of genes within the brain that could potentially lead to the development of new treatments. This new study out of Amazing Israel is helping expand our understanding of how the brain actually functions. It's a very visual reminder of David's words in Psalm 139 that we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. A fascinating king is the focus of your devotional later on. Tell us just a bit more. Now we're heading out into the Judean wilderness and we're gonna look at what Isaiah the prophet said about Cyrus the Great. And before that, a great conversation with Eitan Barr, refuting rabbinic objections to Christianity. You do not want to miss this straightforward conversation. It's all ahead on today's edition of The Land and the Book. To you and me, Christianity sounds rational reasonable. So what is it about our faith that Jewish rabbis struggle with the most, and why? How do we answer those objections, or can we? Up next, a very bold and possibly brilliant conversation that we've titled, Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity. We welcome you back to segment two of The Land and the Book. Eitan Barr is a native Jewish-Israeli born and raised in Tel Aviv. A graduate of Israel Bible College, he earned his doctorate in Middle East Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. Eitan currently serves as One for Israel's Director of Evangelism and Apologetics. His professional background is in multimedia design and visual communications, where he worked for a number of secular advertising agencies in Tel Aviv. As a full-time staff member with One for Israel, Eitan often delivers speeches around the world, and we want to say welcome back to The Land and the Book. Shalom, John. It's good to be back with you guys. So, Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity, your book. In the introduction, you write, In this information age, with doors wide open to ancient manuscripts and countless sources for cross-referencing to check facts, 
Is it right for some rabbi or priest to decide for the people what they should and shouldn't think? Your stance is bold and almost confrontational. Can you recall the moment when you said, I need to write this? Well, the story behind the book is quite funny, actually. Um, I've published a few books, and this is by far the most popular one. Um, it got to be a bestseller a few times on a few different categories. And the funny story behind it is that I've never actually meant to write this book. It was an assignment um, under one of the um, classes we had to take in, uh, as part of our um, doctoral program. Um, about how to, you know, how to write uh, books and, and release books and, and publications and those kind of things. And the final assignment, uh, we could uh, choose um, taking something that we already wrote and try and publish it just for fun. And that's exactly what I did. An interesting beginning. You write that God created his people with a mind and a healthy measure of logic to help them evaluate Bible prophecies for themselves. After all, up there in heaven, no rabbi or priest will be around to hold anyone's hand. Up there, it's just between you and God. Let me ask you uh, right off here, uh, how has this kind of direct challenge been received, Eitan? You know, in Judaism especially here in Israel. It's a society where um, tradition is something very, very strong, and you rely on, your, on the faith of your father, of your ancestors. Um, you kind of go blindly after them. Um, you know, when we read where Yeshua is talking about, you know, when a blind man follows another blind one and, and they fall into a hole, and we can relate to that because... Mm-hmm. I guess it's true in, in many different scenarios in our lives. We just, we just believe something that, you know, our Father will tell us. Um, you can see it in the New Testament many times that the Father comes to know the Lord and his entire family automatically follows him. Mm-hmm. And in our culture, it's still very much true, um, especially when it comes to the more religious Jews. Um, whatever the rabbis say, you have to trust it. And the other side of that coin is that when you start and, in, and investigate who is Yeshua, Jesus, what the New Testament is all about, it's like a betrayal, you know? There is one thing you cannot do, and that is believing in Yeshua. But why? Why not? And nobody can answer that question. Nobody can really, really, in a deep way, answer that question. We all just know that it's not for us. We are not allowed to. But why? So the idea is to challenge that way of thinking. Isaiah 53 appears to believers to be such an obvious messianic prophecy. To what do rabbis object in this uh, text? Isaiah 53 is a tricky one because, you know, for all of us, it's the most obvious prophecy in the Old Testament about Yeshua, about Jesus. But for the rabbis, especially the modern rabbis, they see Isaiah 53 talking about the nation of Israel being rejected by the other nations of the world. But this is not how the sages, the Jewish sages, let's say a thousand years ago, used to see that prophecy. They they did understand it's talking about the Messiah, but um, a thousand years ago, things have changed. So what do they believe about uh, our references? Clear, you know, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. You know, what do they, what do they think that's talking about? 
the rabbis would say that uh, one of the jobs or roles of Israel is to bear the iniquities and, and suffer for the sins of the entire world. And they see it as it's talking about Israel suffering from the hands of the nations and for the nations. And it's kind of ironic because we, we do see it more or less on the same lines, but we, we obviously say it's not about Israel, it's about somebody very specific in Israel. Yes. Dr. Eitan Barr currently serves as one for Israel's Director of Evangelism and Apologetics. He has written Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity and Messianic Prophecies. What about Jesus versus Moses? How is this discussion helpful or perhaps not helpful in, in uh, a conversation with my Jewish friend? You know, we see many great leaders in the Old Testament, Moses, David, and others. And all of them are trying to, you know, for the person coming to read the Old Testament, is always looking back to the promise given in Genesis to this great seed leader that will come and give the great answer that the humanity is looking for. And we are looking at David, we are looking at uh, Moses, we are looking at at Abraham, all those great leaders, but each and every one of them fails in something. And the greater Moses, greater David, greater everybody, greater representative that Israel ever had, uh, the perfect one is the one and only, you know, the Son of God, Yeshua the Messiah. Let me ask a very difficult question. It's not possible or even fair to speak for every rabbi, but do you think that for most of them, the greatest obstacle to believing in Messiah is a lack of evidence and proof, or is it more likely an issue of the will, wanton rejection of Yeshua that's as old as the Pharisees of Jesus' day? I think to really understand why the rabbis are they reject Yeshua is to go back to the days, as you said, the Pharisees, to the days of the Pharisees, the priesthood, to understand really what's going on there and what you see it's unpleasant, but it's very simple for the rabbis to accept Yeshua as Messiah. That means that people will follow the Messiah and not them, you know, and it's kind of the conflict that you saw back then between, you know, you, you had the sages and the Pharisees and the priests and, and scribes and everybody wanted the power to themselves. But if you follow the others, you don't follow them and they lose power. When you lose power, you lose funds and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I think they'll have to get to a point where they somehow humble themselves and before they can uh, accept Yeshua. And that's something that God might have to really help them do. I'm not sure how. Yeah. Eitan Barr is a native Jewish Israeli born and raised in Tel Aviv. He's written Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity. Let's focus on on common rabbinical objections to Christianity. Number one, if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, how come there is no world peace? Yeah, okay. So this is actually, yes, it's a very common one because the rabbis teach, especially today, two things about the Messiah. Number one, and the funny thing is that they actually contradict each other. You see many rabbis say that when the Messiah will come, you will know because you'll see world peace. Other rabbis will say when the Messiah will come, he will destroy all the nations and put Israel as the leader. You know, so in my eyes, it's kind of funny. They don't even notice the conflict. They're talking about world peace, but before it will happen, Messiah will come and destroy everybody else. 
Um, so yes, it will be peace. When you are the only one around, then it's easy to have peace. It's just with yourself, I guess. Um, everybody else is, is a slave for you or something. Let me jump in here. Uh, so, so what do you say to those rabbis who say, look, you claim Jesus is Messiah, and when the Messiah comes, there's supposed to be peace. Where's the peace? There is no peace. Therefore, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. Your response. So in their mind, uh, peace and war, or should I say evil and war, is something on the outside. If only we could get rid of all the weapons and the bombs and the guns, then there will be peace. But even if the Messiah, let's say their Messiah will come and destroy all the weapons, we're still going to fight with one another. We're going to use stones. We're going to use sticks. We're going to use, you know, curse words and our fists. The problem is not external. The problem is not outside. The problem is our hearts. So before we can make peace with one another, we need to make peace inside of ourselves with our God. And uh, that's what first and foremost Jesus came to do, Yeshua came to do, to help us make peace with God. Hmm. And from that peace only, then you can make peace with your neighbors and your enemies. Objection number two. Where was God during the Holocaust? Where was God during the Holocaust? It's actually an objection that not only Orthodox Jews uses, it's actually in a sense more an, uh, an objection that um, secular Jews would use. They would say, if God is so good, if God is with us, for us, then where was he during the Holocaust? Well, the assumption is that God killed six million Jews in the Holocaust, but God did not do that. God is allowing human free will to take action, and under the free will of human beings, that's something that happened that God allowed. God also did not stop murderers from murdering his son, Yeshua, you know? He allowed it to happen because he had good reasons, and the good reason was to bring salvation to the world out of that. I think it was uh, first Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion who said, without the Holocaust, we would never, ever had our own nation here in Israel. God has always used those evil things that human beings are doing mm-hmm. to progress his uh, good plan. Another objection. Uh, the rabbis say we believe in three gods. What is your response to them? The rabbis say that we believe in three gods. Yes, they say that. Interestingly enough, if you go back in time and you see what the sages taught about the nature of God, for example, you look at the book of Zohar, which is the mysticism, the book of mysticism in in, uh, Judaism, you see that they actually describe God more or less the same way. They're talking about how he reveals himself in three different dimensions and, and trying to, to show that. And also the way he sometimes introduces himself to the world in a physical body. This is the real issue with the Trinity. How can God reveal himself in, in fleshly matter? The, it's something that for them, it sounds very pagan. But, you know, when you, when you read Genesis 18 and you see how it says that God came and spoke to Abraham and had a lunch with him, what do you do with that? Or in Garden of Eden, when God is walking around there uh, with Adam and Eve, and how, what do you do with that? And when you look at the sages, they look at those verses and they say what we say, that this is actually God revealing himself in, in human form. 
So we come and we say, okay, if God can do it for one day or for three mm-hmm. hours, how come he cannot do it for 30 years? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a simple solution. So the real issue is not the Trinity. The real issue there is the idea that God uh, can actually reveal himself. This is something that in modern Judaism is pretty strange. Yeah. So how can we pray for rabbis who now reject Yeshua? I think, you know, I know that there are many, many, many Christians, especially evangelicals, who really love Israel. And I hear that many, many times. They say, you know, the quote from, I think it's Psalm 122, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But, you know, I almost never hear people quoting from Paul's prayer in his letter to the Romans when he says that his, his heart's wish is for uh, the salvation of Israel. And I think you can connect between the two and say, if you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, first and foremost, you want to pray for people in Jerusalem and in Israel and all the Middle East, for that matter, to find the prince of peace and make peace with God through Yeshua. And then, you know, peace will come about. So we don't have to get upset with the rabbis. We don't have to hate them, obviously. You know what? I would give up my own life. I would die to see them getting saved. Pray for their salvation. That's the bottom line. Pray for the salvation of, of not only the rabbis, but every Jew and Arab in Israel and the Middle East. This is my challenge and request for anyone listening. Thank you, and that's a great way to land this conversation. Pray for their salvation. Eitan Barr has written Refuting Rabbinic Objections to Christianity. Appreciate those insights, and we're looking forward to a conversation with our own Dr. Charlie Dyer here on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, always glad to be thinking about things that you're thinking about. What do I mean by that? Well, this third segment on the broadcast is all about questions that have come into us. And by the way, yours are welcome anytime. How do you find us? How do you get that question to our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer? It's easy. Visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. You'll find a link there where you can leave your question, thelandandthebook.org. That website, by the way, is loaded up with great resources like information about today's guest, last week's program, next week's program, and so on, thelandandthebook.org. Here's Alan's question several years ago. I heard that the spring feast in the Old Testament law foreshadowed the first coming of Jesus and were fulfilled by the events of the crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost. So does Rosh Hashanah foreshadow the rapture, or does it foreshadow something else? You know, I do believe the feasts and festivals of Israel have prophetic significance. The the spring feast pointed to the first coming of the Messiah. I think the fall feasts do point to his second coming. You know, the spring feast included Passover. Jesus, the Passover lamb, was slain. It included unleavened bread, pointing to his sinlessness and the fact that his body was broken for us. And it had first fruits because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And it had Pentecost, the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit. I see a similar prophetic significance in the fall festivals. The Feast of Trumpets, I do think, signals the rapture or removal of the church and the beginning of the days of awe as God again miraculously intervenes in the affairs of the Jewish people. The Day of Atonement is when the Jewish people will look on him whom they've pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and that'll occur at the second coming. And then Tabernacles, or Sukkot, pictures the regathering of the nation to the land, 
to fulfill all God's kingdom promises, and it pictures the fulfillment of Israel's role as the light to the Gentiles. In fact, Zechariah 14 says the Gentiles will come to Jerusalem to celebrate that festival. Now, I wouldn't push for the exact day. You know, some say uh, that uh, Rosh Hashanah is the day that uh, the rapture will take place. Well, I don't think we can say that because Jesus said regarding his second coming, no one knows the day or the hour. Yeah. Uh, but I do see in general that the fall festivals do point toward events leading up to the second coming of Jesus. Chris is a great student of the Bible, and he's studying with the Ryrie Study Bible, taking us to Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He notes that that scripture is not found in the Old Testament. And he asks, could it be that a person needs the Holy Spirit's assistance in order to love one's enemies? And with the Holy Spirit's indwelling of believers being selective in the Old Covenant, could that be why the love your enemies statement is not in the Old Testament? Yeah, and I need to start by saying, let's look carefully at that context in Matthew 5. You know, six times in that section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard, or it was said, and then Jesus makes a contrast, not between his teaching and what the Old Testament taught, but rather his teaching and what the rabbis taught about the Old Testament. In Jesus's day, a common teaching was that Jews were to love fellow Jews, based on Leviticus 19.18, but were to hate non-Jews who were their enemies. In each of the six sections, Jesus shows that the real intent of God's command far exceeded the interpretation given by these Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees appeared to set down strict regulations for keeping the law, but in reality, those regulations were something they felt they could keep. That was only because they'd actually reduced what God intended in his law. Uh, The command in the Old Testament uh, really were impossible to keep because they reflected God's perfect character, and we can't keep them because we're sinners. Uh, Now, I do find it interesting in this section, Jesus laid down the real standard in God's word. You know, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, That would have been a shock to his audience because they all recognized they weren't perfect in the sense of being exactly like the character of God. But I think that's what Jesus is doing in that section. And he's really saying we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us because God loves all people, even those who are enemies of God. You've made the decision to join us here at The Land and the Book. I hope you're enjoying the program with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. It's questions and answers from listeners right now. You can get yours to us when you send an email. Uh, You'll find a link at thelandandthebook.org. Jim's question. I'm stumped, he says. Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 both say that a Hebrew slave owned by another Hebrew is to be released on the Sabbath year. That would be six years at the most. Leviticus 25 says they're to be released on the year of Jubilee. Can you explain how those relate? Yeah, and I see it as a case where it's really not either or, it's both and. Uh, Now, here's what I mean. The normal policy was for someone to indenture himself to an individual for six years and then be released on the seventh year. The year of Jubilee was then overlaid on this system. Since it only happened every 50 years, it didn't happen very often. But when that year came, the indentured servant could be set free much sooner. Uh, It was a case of being under servitude until the lesser of these two options came available. Six years in most occasions, but the year of Jubilee when it came up could cut that time short. Lori relates having a casual conversation with a Jewish man. She says, we started talking about God, and as a Christian, I was saying that I believe God is a personal God who intervenes in our lives, hears our prayers, is still working in the world. He said, no, God left us after Moses died and no longer is active in our lives. I said, what about the prophets? Didn't God work through the prophets? He said, no. I then said, well, that's why Jesus came to be God in the flesh. He said nothing after that. Question, what do Jews 
think about God? How can I understand better where this guy's coming from? Yeah, and I have to say there's no one single answer for this question. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote that Israel has experienced a hardening in part in Romans 11, but uh, that seems to take several forms. Religious Jews believe in God, though their understanding of who God is and what he requires has been distorted. Uh, In Romans 10, Paul said it this way, they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they don't know the righteousness that comes from God, sought to establish their own, they don't submit to God's righteousness. Now, while it might be that most Orthodox and religious Jews uh, do believe in a God, far more Jews today are secular. Many are agnostic or even atheists. Part of this comes from the emotional trauma of the Holocaust and The reasoning goes something like this. If there is a God, how could he ever allow such atrocity? Therefore, there must not be a God. Or if there was a God, he left long ago. Uh, The fellow you talked to, he's had that second view, that kind of a deistic view. You know, there might be a God, but he stopped getting involved after Moses. Uh, But that might be his way of softening the fact that he really doesn't see God at work today. Now, your response to him was very appropriate. In fact, I'd encourage you to do just two other things. Uh, Pray and ask God to continue to bring loving believers across his path to show the genuine love of God. Now, even if he doesn't seem open, Mm -hmm. God can still use the words of a caring believer to reach into his heart. And second, if you're in a position where you come across his path, just continue to show him genuine love and concern. You'll work to build bridges. And as the opportunity arrives, let him know you care for him and you're praying for him. And don't be afraid to bring Jesus into the conversation when it's appropriate. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Andrew's question, where may I find the answer to why keeping the Sabbath isn't practiced any longer by Christians? Yeah, Andrew, I actually see several reasons why keeping the Sabbath isn't practiced by Christians today. Uh, The command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy isn't repeated as a command for the church in the New Testament. Uh, In Acts 15, it's not one of the requirements that was placed on Gentile Christians by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, that's important because that's the one place where these early church leaders could have determined that the Sabbath was a requirement demanded by God for all his followers, regardless of whether they were Jewish or Gentile. Uh, The other thing I'd say is the church began meeting on Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. We also see evidence of this in other places. In in Acts 20, Paul went to Troas, and it says he was there seven days, so he he was there over the Sabbath. But then in verse 7, it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That is, he was there on Saturday, the Sabbath, but that wasn't the day the church gathered. They gathered instead on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Uh, The same thing can be found in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul talked about the collection for the church being taken up for the saints, and he said it was on the first day of the week. Now, additionally, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul specifically said the Sabbath, along with several other Jewish laws, were mere shadows of what was to come. That's what he says in Colossians 2, where he said, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath day which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he says those Old Testament regulations were for a purpose, to point Old Testament saints toward the coming Messiah. But now that he's come, those regulations aren't necessary. Let me end with one positive note. Uh, In Romans 14, Paul says observing a special day to the Lord is still okay, as long as the person doesn't try to impose those beliefs on others. Mm. So if you want to celebrate the Sabbath, that's not a problem, but uh, just don't require it of other Christians. Charlie, an important tool in Bible study for many is an interlinear copy of the Scriptures. Exactly what is that, and how can we find one without having to lay out big books? 
Uh, the nice thing is you can find it online. Just Google the word interlinear. Uh, it's, a, it's a Bible where the English translation and the Greek uh, are listed beside each other, word for word. So if you want to know what does the Greek say, uh, the interlinear can help. And that's a look at your questions here on The Land and the Book, where Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. So how much downtime do you need? How much alone time do you require to function as a human being? Maybe you'd like to go out into a wilderness, enjoy some ultimate downtime. Well, Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up here on The Land and the Book is the ultimate wilderness experience, as you're about to discover. I'm John Geiger, though, inviting you to hang out with us now as we take in this brief Holy Land experience. Check this out. I went to the Holy Land uh, when I was about 25 years old. It was at a point where I was um, studying the Bible and I went to church, but up to that point I felt like I was a churchgoer, but faith wasn't part of my life. The trip to the Holy Land allowed me to see every single story from the Bible as if it were real. And not only that, I also gained a historical perspective because the current events suddenly made so much more sense because of the rooting in history. It was devastating to see how many centuries people have not been able to resolve their view of the Lord. But what I kept with me for the next 30 years has been that our Christ walked those streets in Jerusalem. And uh, I felt like every single thing that I try to wonder and believe in that is in God's Word, I go back to the fact that, well, Jesus was real, and his world was real, and, and these messages from God in the Bible are real for me, too. Thank you very much. So, I don't know about you, but I, I do like disconnecting from people. I like downtime. I need downtime. And being in the trees uh, is sort of my thing in a forest. Maybe for you it's being in a, in a desert. Well, we're about to hear some fresh perspectives from Charlie Dyer in his devotional that will give an entirely different rendering of Isaiah chapter 40. Charlie, where are we headed? Yeah, today's journey actually takes us into the Judean wilderness. The prophet Isaiah used this area's deep, craggy valleys, rock-strewn hills, and barren landscape as the canvas on which he painted a remarkable portrait of God returning to shepherd his people. And Isaiah painted this masterpiece for an audience that hadn't yet been born. He was living in Jerusalem at the time of King Hezekiah. But beginning in chapter 40, he wrote to the Jewish remnant living in captivity in Babylon nearly two centuries in the future. Isaiah's prophecy is so dramatic and specific that many believe the second half of the book bearing his name must have been written by someone else, someone living long after the original Isaiah had died. This otherwise unknown writer then either assumed Isaiah's persona, putting words into his mouth, so to speak, or else penned his message anonymously, only to have a still later generation mistakenly connect it with the original book of Isaiah. Eventually, the two books came to be viewed as a single work from the hand of one author. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls created serious problems for this view. A complete scroll of the prophet Isaiah was discovered that dates to the 2nd century B.C. Isaiah 39 ends on the next-to-last line of a column. If Isaiah 40-66 to was penned by a different author living almost two centuries after the original Isaiah, the person copying this manuscript had the perfect way to show a break. All he needed to do 
was begin chapter 40 at the top of the next column. Instead, chapter 40 begins on the last line of the previous column, immediately after the end of chapter 39. There's no break. The theory that Isaiah was originally two or more books written hundreds of years apart, but that somehow got joined together, requires a relatively long period of time for that process to take place. But the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls moved our knowledge of Isaiah back in time a thousand years to within a few hundred years of the time when the different parts were supposedly written. And there is nothing in the scroll that even remotely hints at the idea of multiple authors. Based on the textual evidence, it looks as if the book had but one author, Isaiah, the son of Amos, who prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So why are some so insistent on having a second author for the last half of the book? Primarily, it's because of the amazing prediction in Isaiah 45, verses 1 and 4. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I've given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. Isaiah began prophesying in 739 B.C. Cyrus, the king of Medo-Persia, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. How could Isaiah the prophet identify Cyrus by name as the one God would raise up to free the Jewish people from captivity in Babylon? This is the stumbling block that causes so many to doubt Isaiah penned these words. How could Isaiah know the name of someone two centuries in advance? And what possible significance could such a message have for the people in Isaiah's day? So how could Isaiah know the name of someone almost two centuries before that person walked onto the international stage? The answer is simple. Isaiah couldn't have known unless God revealed it to him. Only God knows with certainty the future. And it's no accident that in Isaiah 40 to 48, God claims multiple times to be foretelling the future to demonstrate that he alone is God and that there's no other like him. Listen to what he says as he challenges all comers who dare claim to be his equal. Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 23. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what's coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, so that we may know you are God's. Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Isaiah 44, 7. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not yet been done saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 48, verses 3 and 6. 
I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. You have heard, look at this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. Isaiah's prediction of the coming of Cyrus is bookended by these dramatic announcements from God. God is declaring that he is the only God of the universe, that he controls all that takes place, that he'll work out his promises to his followers. But how can we be sure? In this section of the book, God provided a specific example to show the extent to which he is in control. Before Babylon became a major power, God announced the Jews would go into captivity there and would be rescued by a man named Cyrus, an unbeliever, yet under the sovereign control of the God of the universe. To put this in perspective, imagine living in the United States in 1818. James Monroe is president, and everyone is excited over our country's recent purchase of Florida from Spain. Suddenly, a prophet walks into Washington, D.C., and announces that a man named Neil Armstrong will take off on a rocket from Florida and be the first man to land on the moon. Isaiah's prophecy was that dramatic that specific, and made that far in advance. No human could do that. But God can, and he did. The Bible has other predictions about the future, predictions that look forward to the return of Jesus. God doesn't tell us everything that will take place, but he shares enough to remind us he is still in control. We stand at the threshold of a new year, a year filled with great political and economic uncertainty. But the God of the universe has already told us how the story is going to end. Are you concerned about what tomorrow holds? Pull out your Bible and read Isaiah 40 through 48. Mark every passage where God announces his control over the future. Then close your Bible and pause to thank him for being such an amazing God, a God who controls the future and who also cares for his children. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate that great perspective. You know, we like to encourage you as you listen to The Land and the Book to think about sharing us with a friend. We don't have some big advertising budget. You won't find us in web banners or any kind of billboards or radio or TV ads. Nothing of the sort. It's you and me who tell our friends about the broadcast and let them know where they can listen. You say, well, my friend doesn't live near a radio station that carries The Land and the Book. That's not a problem. As you know, we are available online. We can be streamed or downloaded at the convenience of your friend. So... Just give them the uh, address of our website. It's thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Our team here at The Land of the Book includes Dan Anderson, our co-producer, and Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for hanging out with us. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Have a great weekend, and do come back next week. <laughs>